Hi, Filmatics. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have a special guest, Jody Neely. Jody is an Emmy-nominated director, producer, and cinematographer known for shooting the Beastie Boys videos, the Hannah Montana show, and more commercial work than he or anybody can remember. Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marilyn. I love the show. I'm an official addict now. I <laughs> love your content and direction you're going. It's fun to have uh, a collective place where creatives can come together and, and really share their thoughts and the ideas of what it takes to actually put projects together and, and the, uh, the pitfalls and all the things that are described within that lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, so, nice. so, yeah. So, Jody, are you where are you are? Uh, where are we recording you live today from? I'm in uh, in L.A. in the Valley. OK, great. And uh, yeah. we've actually got a nice day today. It's 80. So <laughs> beautiful, beautiful winter day in L.A. Yeah. And I feel bad for all the people in the snowstorm like my friends in Texas. So I hope they're doing well, especially if they're tuning in. Um, so so I want to ask in Denver. Uh, oh, Denver's in there as well. A oh lot of people from Denver are in the same position. Lots of uh, negative temperatures and snow and stuff. So, so well, I hope and, um, we can at least entertain them with the podcast while they're snowed in, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so um, we love movies here and, and television. But I want to ask you, what is one of your favorite movies um, that you remember as a kid growing up? Of all time, probably Dr. Strangelove comes to mind. Ooh, um, yeah. Just, yeah, it was just a, such a different style and type of movie. Uh, even for his time, the, the story that, uh, you know, it, it unfolded was just quite shockingly poetic. And, um, and that's exactly the, the form that, um, that Stanley wrote the piece in. Um, was a satire. It was, that's the only way he could envision that story to be told without it being so hellishly nightmarish that uh, it couldn't be defined by a comedy or satire setting that that uh, you know someone like Peter Sellers created within that. So, yeah, it's really uh, one of my favorite classics of all time. Um, you know, one one of the things that really kind of sticks out for me is. Um, just watching Peter Sellers being able to master three performances and even Stanley wanted him to do four. But uh, it was the first time I, I realized that anything like that was possible. Uh, and then beyond that, I realized that anything was possible with film because of just putting one person in three different positions that they played out three different characters across one story. And you just, you couldn't, it was seamless. You just couldn't tell the difference uh, in the president or, or a uh, group captain, uh, Mandrake, uh, you know, it's just, it, there was just, just so many, so many levels to, to what real true talent had as a mastery of, of being an actor. Uh, during the you know 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, what that entailed, because those guys were real craftsmen. Uh, they would come up with things that that no one else would, and it was because that, uh, they were one of a kind. Um, uh, Stanley within himself, uh, and uh, all the other actors that he surrounded himself with, they really put out the performances that they would have given to no one else, really. 
because it was such a, a different piece of work every time Stanley approached a project. It was just on a different level. So. And, and and that is for our um our, our new generation and, and uh, newbies our, our rising stars that would be Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, yes. Yeah, and can you tell me that quote from that movie, please? I just been waiting for you to say it. <laughs> what? Well, there's no fighting in the war room, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> this is the war room. There are no there's no fighting allowed in here. Or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean that is the best. That movie. I'm gonna watch that movie tonight. That's such a great suggestion, Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, and for I hope for like the um the TikTok um listeners and the Snapchats and the Instagram. Um, my friends, my friends from YouTube. I got some um. Um, neighbors down the street that have one of those YouTube houses where they have the drone and they had the rooftop party and that clown around here. So I hope they'll watch that. And um, yeah. Um, so, so I, uh, so what is one of your favorite criteria movies that perhaps inspired you to go into your career? So I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, watching uh, a Charlie Chaplin film called city lights with my grandmother. Uh, and this one particular moment in my life just, uh, just stands out because I realized that the lighting was so drastically different from what you would see in television at that time when I was, you know, what is this, 84, 85, uh, when I was nine years old. I just realized it was so drastically different, all the shows that you were watching uh, during that period. Uh, versus what City Lights came out to be and what Charlie Chaplin had mastered in the lighting um, and how they used the key, the key light uh, just in a very specific way that defined that era in uh, being able to draw attention away from certain areas and putting it onto others where the story was unfolded for you. Uh, it really it defined what worked for cinema at that point. Um, they were they just became masters at, at using diffusion and uh, just making your eye travel to where the story is happening. Um, and it would just it was something just notably different for me. It was something that just uh, it just catches your attention at one point. And at that time, I was taking uh, thirty five millimeter shots uh, from my father's camera he'd give me a roll of film a week and he would develop it for me and we'd see kind of uh you know like a a week in 24 or 36 exposures and that's how i grew up so it, it was defined in how things were lit and how you want to frame something uh in 2d to master presenting something in 3d or even 4d as an extrasensory dimension within a film so Oh. It was just uh, it was a great realization at you know ten years old nine whatever it was. You were um, definitely on the path to being <laughs> a producer, director, and cinematographer. Oh my gosh, just the way that you explained the lighting in that is extraordinary. And yeah, Charlie Chaplin, amazing. So also, like, is there you know like one of your favorite directors and film shots that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. So right now I'm really on kind of a. Um, uh, Quentin and P.T. Anderson kick, and uh, they've got a, a slow dolly push um, that reframes the scene throughout the shot uh, that have really become uh, masterpieces within themselves. Uh, yeah, but it, 
get in, you know, keep in mind that you have to have really amazing talent to go through a, a three or four minute really slow push across 25 or 30 feet uh, to cover an area of a story without cuts uh, and make that flow and not have somebody look into the camera or something that uh, would just really throw you off. Uh, you have to have that talent on that level to be able to carry that off and, and have the scene set up correctly and have teleprompters in different spots or whatever that is and have it rehearsed. Um, but it always makes the scene way bigger than it is because it just really gets you into the moment uh, by defining the conversation and what that really is bringing to the story. And you end up with these really close shots on people that are maybe even uncomfortable at times, but the conversation has brought you to that discomfort. And it's just that, you know, that extra sensory dimension that you can pull off um, in film that, you know, these guys are, you know, that's why they're still shooting on film. They're masters at uh, everything else that gets you to the point where you turn that camera on. Uh, they, you know, they, they put all that work in uh, beforehand and, and that's what really pays off. Um, but one shot in mind uh, it's from Inherent Vice is when uh, the, the two characters are sitting down in front of the window and it's just a slow push across uh, uh, the floor of a bar or whatever they're in. Um, but it really encompasses like the depth of how far away they are in the beginning of the conversation. Whenever you end the scene, they're right in the middle of talking about this guy's daughter and that he had seen her in years and she's make, he's making sure that his wife is okay because he's gone on a different path and he can't see them anymore for danger. Um, so it, it's really good. It's a really good scene. It's uh, There's a lot of this and you see it in pretty much every Quentin film since maybe, I mean, it's in Pulp Fiction. I'm not sure that he used it a lot in, in um, uh, like My Best Friend's Birthday or or Reservoir Dogs. I don't remember seeing it specifically, but I, I remember seeing it in uh, Jack Rabbit Slim's uh, parking lot, all those slow pushes, those dolly moves and stuff that really characterize um, just really smooth cinema. Yeah, I love those. How long do you think it like three? It takes three days to do that. How long do you think it takes to set up uh, one of those scenes? I would say in pre-production, you would probably pull those scenes apart and start working on them then um, uh, for your, for your talent and for your you know your set construction and things like that. Uh, but I would I would imagine probably three days. Uh, one day just getting it rehearsed and lit exactly right and then just go through and give your uh, give your actors some space get in there and let them really explore what that is and, and the emotion behind it and how to recreate the energy of the scene wow I mean I love those I actually met Quentin Tarantino and he was with um, PTA and I was like oh my god the frogs and Quentin thought that, that was so funny <laughs> And uh, yeah, so we kind of became friends because he's Italian and we both talk fast. So uh, I, I look up to him, too, because I'm like, he he was in the video store when there was video stores. And now look at him. He's a huge director and he's fantastic. So 
be nice to your, you know, um, coffee baristas or you never know who might be the next <laughs> big, right. extremely talented director, writer, producer, actor or whatever, because you got to start somewhere. And, and, you know, if you have love for something, it looks like you can you can blossom and really achieve stuff. So um, I, I, one of the films that you would like to direct is can you share with that? Because it's so amazing. One film that I would have loved to direct would um, it would be Clockwork Orange. Oh yeah, um, standalone. <laughs> yeah, except for like the book ending, I would have changed the book ending. Uh, Alex would have gone out in a blaze of glory somehow instead of uh, <laughs> <laughs> instead of being being taunted by the the old drunk on the bridge. You know? uh, I, it just would have played out differently. I would have had him steal a cop car or something. He, he would have gotten away somehow. <laughs> I, I like your ending. I like it. I like it. Um, so just a fun fact about you. Uh, can you say what you and your brother used to be do during your summers? <laughs> yeah, so my father, well, I, I had a, a big military family and um, I had an uncle who was a, um, he was an officer, I don't know, 20 something years at, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is in Tennessee. That was just right over the line in Tennessee. Um, but, uh, we used to be able to, like, I was 12 or 13 years old and my father and my uncle, my brother would go up, uh, to Fort Campbell and we would launch, uh, M203 grenades, um, out of, you know, these grenade launchers into cars, they had these fields set up where you could launch, you know, these grenades into different, uh, different distances and things like that. Um, that was kind of uh, a normal thing after, you know, like the, the second time that we did it, about 14 or so, it was normal. It was normal to go drop uh, a thousand or two thousand rounds at uh, at the um, at the range and, you know, do 50 uh, 203s at, at cars or walls or oh whatever that was, <laughs> whatever they had set up out there. I mean, I, it, it wasn't like abstract from what I grew up as. Uh, because I have actually, I had a rifle before I had a bicycle. So. <laughs> hey, that almost rhymes. I had a rifle before I had a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. you go. And that's that's the way you grow up in Tennessee. Oh, on yeah. 400 acres. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a lot of acres. <laughs> so It sure was. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to ask so the audience can uh, learn about your path to success. It's like, well, how did you start? Uh, I guess it was just, uh, well, for one thing, my father always um, allowed me to kind of steal his camera out of the headboard of their bed and, and not really get onto me so much about spooling film through it as a five or six year old that would just catch, you know, maybe three shots out of the whole, uh, whole 36 exposures that were in focus. Um, and it, but, you know, that, that drives you to seeing what you could do uh, better like as a six-year-old um seeing the film come out and it blurry and it wasn't what you saw with your eye but you learned how to see things with your eye through the camera to get what you want and beyond that it was just it was the setup uh, you know of, of what film you had and how you set your camera you know would depict what would be shot onto the film uh, and what would be, you know, what you would see a week later or 10 days later, whenever it came back. Um, and you got to talk about it with your dad and, 
and what was great about it was it was real it was real it was real film it was it had the grain it had all the textures and all the blacks where they were supposed to be all the whites where they're supposed to be i loved shooting black and white uh, most of the, the pictures that i remember actually uh, being something that I thought was a success for me were black and white pictures from that time. So um, that and, you know, I remember one specific uh, moment. I was a kid, uh, I think it was five or so. Uh, my mother took me to, to see Bertie Higgins, who is the, the famous key Largo composer, um, shooting music video at uh at a hotel in, in chattanooga called the chattanooga choo choo and uh if i remember correctly that the group was was named atlanta uh, i don't think they did very much but uh but anyway one of the man, band members uh, during the shooting of the video uh was up on a diving board at the pool at this hotel and he went in his bare feet and jeans and shirt with a guitar that was unplugged dove off the diving board into the pool and it just my mind exploded at that point i was like but you can't do that but they just did it right there for you and you know it just kind of uh it was kind of the beginning of breaking all the rules for me you know creating that uh that no boundary point it's you don't want to be defined by something so don't don't be defined by that break the rules Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Uh, can you tell me like what a funny story? Because you have a good funny story. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess it's funny. This is more, um, it's more of things going wrong on set, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it was so three years ago, I found a Kodak rep. Uh, they had a refrigerator full of new old stock Kodachrome 200 speed. Uh, 36 exposure. Um, they had a whole refrigerator full of like uh, 3,000 uh, cartons or something like that. Uh, and I came with the, uh, up with the idea of like splicing 20 rolls together to get 30 seconds uh, to shoot a Dior commercial uh, with Charlize Theron. And it uh, subsequently was shot in, in, uh, in digital. But uh, we colored the set, used all the greens and oranges and the lighting to accentuate those colors uh, that would come out from the Kodachrome. Uh, but the budget became too much, and they ended up shooting it digitally, as I said. Uh, they weren't, um, you know, there weren't as many snafus with that uh, as it would have been with shooting it on old Kodachrome. Uh, and, and getting that developed through one guy in Portland who's the only dude on the planet, I think, developing Kodachrome at this point. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, so it was just going to be a lot. It was, it was like a, it's like a sixty percent budget increase, and they just they you know plus it became it came with a lot of we don't know how well it will look parameters because we're shooting with a you know film that was at that point uh, the last production run on it was 06 of two thousand three, so June of two thousand three was all this film. So and we were shooting fourteen years later uh, in two thousand seventeen. So it was just, uh, it was a lot of unknowns there um, and a lot of extra work. I mean, we had to get this into a lab and get all this film out of these canisters and cut together in order to actually have something to put 27 seconds together. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was mad. It was a madness, but that's the level at which you try to create. 
You don't stop because somebody said that they're going to stop making the film 15 years before your project shoots. <laughs> you know, you just don't, you, you don't let things like that define you. Yeah. So, um, so you had some disappointments and then how did you get over, you know, overcome those disappointments to achieve that success that you have? Well, I, I guess the, most of that probably revolves around getting money for like any project ever. Um, but I get, you know, beyond that, the real challenges are within, within the crew and how well that fits into the glove that you've created for that. Um, but allowing the people to work within their craft and give you their best look or something original from their genius um, and collecting bright people to accentuate what it is that uh, one does as a director is uh, is the true leadership role. Um, collecting those people is is really number one. So you can't be a dick. You got to be you know you got to be personable. You have to love everyone. Uh, and I know this is hard to look at it in this way, but you can't have bad days like that um, because it breaks down that the, the whole pyramid of how things are built um because that's your that's your backbone to a project is your director and if your director's off course or off balance with something then you're going to create some type of discord somewhere that's not going to be what everybody was looking to get from that project whereas if you just have everything flowing and it's all combining to create exactly what you thought you were going to see coming through the camera. Um, I think that's, that's the beauty of it all. Having those moments where there's nothing you can make better and it's going exactly how you envisioned. Yeah. So, um, uh, Jody, so are you part Italian, right? Sicilian, right? Sicilian. Yeah. yeah. Uh, grandmother was from Palermo, Sicily. Yeah. So. And I was born in Naples and my mom is in Naples, Italy right now. But I know you like pizza, but I want people to know that you've been working in nonprofit since you're 16 years old. Not only are you a fabulous Emmy Award winning um, a film, you know, spectacular here, but you've been working in nonprofit, which is amazing. And, you know, I just want to ask you, you know, during lockdown, did you, you know, um, did you develop any hobbies and how did it affect your art? Um. I think well, this pit the first uh, subject first. Uh, I had been working with nonprofits since I think I was actually fourteen. Whenever my mother started me out, but I actually started doing things on my own when I was sixteen. I had a car, um, and I, I think the idea that I've developed behind what that is that pushes me to do that now, uh, almost thirty years later, is those nonprofits or the groups that are doing tons of great things for community which is where change really happens right uh and almost always they do it with just a ridiculous shoestring budget um and that was probably one of the first things that i noticed was that you know they had a like a fifty-eight thousand dollar budget for something that ran all year and i was like how's that possible that's like a week you know, or four days or something of shooting on uh, on any commercial project or something like that at a minimum. Um, or you could burn it up in an hour, like on a on a feature set. Um, 
and they have to run a you know 365 year pro a 365 day program off of that. Uh, and it just showed me uh, that money isn't always the key to success, right? Um, especially in film, but it's there in film, it always helps. But it, you know, it just shows you that you can do things just based off of the uh, the amount of energy that is put into um, anything, really, any project. If you want to look at it that way, you put enough energy into something, it's going to succeed, or you know, uh, whatever that is um, in in someone's measurement of success. But uh, it's going to go somewhere. You know, I, I want um, all our listeners to know before we go on what you've been working on, because you are working on this spectacular film called Backstage. And I just want everyone to know um, it's a music bio picture intertwined with conspiracy theories and historical plot twists across three decades and about Marty Harrowell, who toured with many um, big names like Sinatra and Elvis. And so can you just tell us about that real quick before uh, so that the audience can know what you're working on? Yeah, so uh, the I'm working on uh, what seven seven different features, uh, a couple of documentaries, a couple of shorts in there. Um, so there's always something you know pushing uh, my day through. But uh, the backstage is about Marty. Um, and he's a, a trombone player that uh, toured with Elvis and Sinatra in their days, and. Uh, um, I took his reality of how his life played out on tour during uh, a lot of segregated times, um, a lot of uh, different historical events, and uh, just kind of intertwined some, uh, some of the conspiracy theories and historical plot twists in there to make this uh, a very interesting narrative. and. Uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, Wag the Dog meets uh, Forrest Gump, if you want to break it down like that. Oh, wow. Sounds fantastic. So you've been really busy. Seven films lined up, some documentaries, some shorts, and I know you have some other businesses as well. And uh, and so I, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing with us today and uh, telling us all your great um I love the lighting and the directing. I can't wait to see something you direct. Um, I'm I'm very excited. And uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. And so where um, can people just kind of keep up with like what you're doing? Do you have a Facebook page, LinkedIn page? I do have a Facebook page. It's uh, You can just search for Jody Neely on Facebook uh, and it'll be the first one to show up. Our Instagram at Jodster514. Um, or you can find me on IMDb as well for oh. Jody Neely. Okay, that is terrific. So, well, we're enjoying some sunny weather here in Los Angeles. Until next week, Film Addicts, stay healthy and, uh, you know, uh, cheers to everyone and thank you for listening. <laughs>